Hello and welcome to Gibbo's Corner. This is a special episode to celebrate the life of one of England's finest footballers, one of England's finest characters within the game, and that is Jack Charlton, who sadly died aged 85 over the weekend. We've seen the tributes, the outpouring of grief, the funny stories, uh, the, the memories of Jack from characters from all over the game, uh, pundits, journalists, footballers, players who played under him, managers who went up against them. And I'm joined now by John Gibson, as ever, who wasn't just someone who reported on Jack, who followed him around the country, whether it be international football or Newcastle United, but was also a personal friend of Jack. And John, that's where I'd like to start. Just your your overall memory of Jack. Yeah, well, we've uh, it's very glib and it's said far too often, but we've lost a wonderful, wonderful man in Jack John. Uh, big Jack, he was known to everyone. He was he was big in every sense of the world. He was a giant of the football world. Of that, there's absolutely no question. He had a blue chip career in football. You couldn't do much better than he did. He played over 700 games for Leeds United, won every domestic trophy you could think of that was possible, and then become unique in being in the England World Cup winning side of 1966. Not just that, the only side we've ever had that won the World Cup, but alongside his brother Bobby as well. So a great, great player, but often great players don't make great managers. He went on to have a superb career as a manager, uh, was loved in Middlesbrough, revered in Middlesbrough, his first job in management for taking them up and winning the championship to put them back in top flight football. Uh, he felt privileged to manage his club, which was Newcastle United, always a fan of Newcastle United, from cradle to grave was Jack, managed them for a season and kept them up comfortably when the worry was that they could have gone straight back down and then went to the Republic of Ireland and become a total, total legend. And behind this man is what really matters because he was a wonderful tactician, a wonderful brain in football, but a very, very warm personality. Oh, he was a tough guy, all right. Tough, not just on the field, but off the field. Players could feel the lashing of his tongue because he didn't suffer fools gladly and he was very impetuous in his nature. But beneath it was a genuine warmth, a genuine camaraderie. And if you were lucky enough at any stage of your life to become a friend of Jack John's, you had a friend for life because that's the way he looked upon things and that's what he was. And for me, looking back, it was a privilege that I was allowed to be around him for so long and stand and marvel at what he achieved in football. But above all, what made it extra special, you know, was that he was one of us. He was a Geordie who went out there and become a legend of world game, not just domestically. And he was our legend, and God bless him for everything he did to promote Geordie throughout the world in football, where we're very proud people, where it's a great, great passion. And he stood literally head and shoulders above so many. None stood above him. He stood above most. Wonderful tribute. I don't think anyone could have put it better. Let's go back to the start then. Born mm. May the 8th, 1935 in Ashington. And I think everybody, every football fan, when you say the words Ashington, you, <laughs> you know what's going to come next. We've yeah. spoken about it on the podcast before. Absolutely. 
the footballing uh, family connections up there. It's just unbelievable. And he was part of he was yes. part of that clan. I mean, he he came from royalty, the royal family of football, if you like, the Melbourne clan, which is what uh, Bobby and Jackie were born into. Um, you've got to remember his mum was. Elizabeth Milburn, known to everyone as Sissy, but Elizabeth Milburn. Her dad was Tanner Milburn, who was a goalkeeper uh, locally. The, uh, Sissy had four brothers who all played in the football league. George Milburn played for Leeds and Chesterfield. Jim played for Leeds. Stan played for Chesterfield. And Jack played for Leeds. And um, Tanner's brother, her, her dad, was Alec Milburn, and he was... Well, Jackie Milburn's dad. Jackie Milburn was a cousin of the Charlton family. Um, and both Bobby and Jack knew him as, as Uncle Jackie, uh, one of the great, great players of, of the time. And Sissy herself always said, you know, um, because of her brothers, she never had a, a doll in a pram uh, for a present for when she was a little girl. She she had a football and went out on the new big beach and played football with her brothers. And she said she was cursed a thousand times that she was born a lass. That's what she said, because football was so much in her blood. Amazingly, considering the whole family background, the guy she married, Bob Charlton, wasn't into football whatsoever. Boxing was his game, and um, she told us a super story about Bob. Um, he was a he loved boxing, and he went onto the fairgrounds in those days. A lot of the fairgrounds, whenever I remember when I was a kid, it was like this: had boxing booths on the fairground, and you could go up and challenge the local pug who was at the boxing booth to see if you could do three rounds with him. And Bob went this day to Paddy's Market to, to the boxing booth there and challenged the local boxer that was standing to... And he got knocked out. Bob got knocked out in the second round. Didn't do the three rounds. But he was paid a quid for his, um, for his efforts in going into the ring. And with that pound, Sissy told me, he bought her wedding ring for 17 and sixpence and he bought a curb for the fireplace with the other two and six, and they got married as a result of him doing that in the boxing ring at the, at the local fairground. They moved into Laburnum Terrace, which is a row of houses in Ashington, pit houses with an outside loo, outside netty, as they used to say in those days, and that was where the Charlton family became one of the, the, the biggest, and... You know, when you had War Jackie, you, you could never think of any member of any family getting any bigger than War Jackie, who was won the Cup three times in five years, centre forward for England, etc., etc. And then along comes Bobby and Jack Charlton, who become World Cup winners. What a family that is. Yeah, it's amazing. Imagine the, uh, the Christmas dinners around there. <laughs> you mentioned, Cece, I think one of the pictures that's been doing the rounds over the weekend is of a young Jack Charlton mm -hmm. um, and someone's throwing a ball up and both of them have gone for the header his mom and jack and i think that just sums it up totally you, totally you, um yeah sissy sissies as she said she cursed a thousand times that she was born a lass because all her four brothers played in the football league she was obsessed with football she coached football later in her life in ashington you know she, she coached a load of kids in a team at football and bob bob the dad was 
completely quiet and really sat in the corner and didn't take part in anything, loved boxing, didn't love football. And when you watched, when you got to know the two brothers, um, Bobby Charlton was very much like his dad, Bob, quite reserved, quite within himself, no way an extrovert. And Jack was very much like Sissy, his mum, uh, full of fun, uh, outward going, uh, quick to give their opinion, uh, never wrong, and all, all those. And it was quite amazing how they, they took after each one, took after their parents. And I talked to Sissy a lot uh, when I saw her later on. I said, Sis, what were the two lads like as kids? And the, as you said, they were chalk and cheese. They were totally... And as people, they looked alike, as you well know. They looked alike. If you look at the two faces, you would say they're brothers without knowing anything about them. But really, that was about as far as it went, as far as brothers were concerned. They were so very, very different. And I asked Sissy about them, and she said, Oh, Jack was a rascal. He always went bird nesting and chasing the lasses, etc., etc. While Bobby, and this was her words, was nicknamed Little Lord Fauntleroy because Bobby liked staying at home. He was a deeper thinker. He was much more quiet and introvert, like his dad. Whereas Jack was totally the extrovert, wanted to be outside, and he loved the country pursuits. He was all about bird nesting as a kid. He was all all about going fishing when he'd become an adult, like nothing better than standing with waders on and a flat cap in any river he could find and spend the whole day fishing. Very, very different people. And, to be truthful, very, very different footballers. Both successful, but very, very different. Well, I think that's one of the quotes that came out of one of the interviews that was played over the weekend. Was, um, it must have been from the 70s. And, and Jack's asked about being compared to his brother. That's right. I and he remember. says something along the lines of, look, he's the creative one. Um, and I just, I can't play. I'm not creative. I just stop people being creative. But yeah. there is a place for both of them in a game. And by goodness me, and we'll get onto this um, later on the podcast, but he couldn't half stop people from playing oh, football. Yeah, and he was quite open about it. Uh, you're, you're quite right. He, he, it was one of the television shows and he came out and he said, people shouldn't compare us. War kid which is how he always referred to Bobby. All his life he called him War Kid and he knew who he was talking about. War Kid could play, I couldn't play, but I could stop others from playing. In, in his team there was always room for the two. And he always said that Bobby was the greatest player that he'd ever seen. I mean, Bobby was the elegant, effortless, beautiful runner, visionary of the game. And uh, Jack was the gangling, knobbly knee destroyer who stood on the goalkeeper's toes on the on the line for Leeds corners and headed the ball in the net and scored. Very, very different types um, of players. But amazingly, you know, um, when you think of how wonderful a player Bobby was and how everybody wanted Bobby uh, when he was a kid, Jack was the first one to get a club back in, in 1950 when he when Leeds come in from. Mind, Leeds were the only club they did come in from, uh, whereas everybody wanted Bobby, but he was always bound for Newcastle United. Jack left school, he was six foot two. Uh, dripping wet, he was about three stone, mind, but he was six foot two. Um, and he applied to, to join the police as a police cadet, and in the meantime started training to go down the pit. 
ways that worked. As of course, all the Milburns did. Uh, Jackie Milburn went down the pit uh, initially in Ashton and was down the pit when he applied for a trial at Newcastle United and got it. And uh, Jack was applied for the pit as well, but luckily he got rescued by Leeds United coming in and um, and taking him. And what a wonderful, wonderful career lay ahead. But they were obsessed with football. By the way, a lot of people think there is, there's just the two Charlton boys in the family, but there was actually four brothers. There's the two very, very famous ones and the two that didn't make it at football, Gordon and Tommy, who remained great fans of their brothers and went and saw them play all over the place. But there was, there was four brothers, not two. I mean, one of the things which is really interesting, you've mentioned it there, is that you know, Leeds came in, but what I've what I've read is that he actually turned them down. He then went down the pit, like you say, realised, no, it's not quite for me. And you say, applied for the police. And on the same day um, that the trial for the police or the interview was, was the Leeds trial. And obviously he said, right, I'll, I'll go down to Leeds. And he never looked back. But I mean, it's such a, you know, this isn't any walk of life, but how kind of fate is it's such a it oh, turns yeah. on a sixpence doesn't and, it and, and funny enough and we'll mention it in a minute but funny enough when you went to Leeds it wasn't I mean you know Bobby went to Manchester United and just took off but he's one of the most unique players this world's ever seen never mind England uh, so that was always going to happen but at the start Bobby didn't have it easy it, it, it Leeds whatsoever and was a very dubious trainer amazing when you think of how he looked upon football life as a manager but a very dubious trainer and um, didn't train well and it was on and irritated Don Revy to bits and it was only when Don Revy come manager that he actually saved his career and, and, and Jack knuckled under and become the favourite son of, of Revy Um but the, the the things I remember and Jack telling me a lot about was as kids, him and Bobby idolised War Jackie and therefore idolised Newcastle United. And every Saturday that Newcastle had a home game, Bobby and Jack would get on the bus in Ashton and go down to the Haymarket in Newcastle where they got off the bus, walk down into Northumberland Street to have their their dinner, as they called it, it was actually their lunch before the game, and uh, often as not, it was fish and chips. Walk up to St James's Park, into the match, stand on the halfway line, watch Jackie play with all the wonderful players like Bobby Mitchell, in, in, et cetera, et cetera, Joe Harvey, of course. Then after the game, go across the road to New St James's Hall to the Saturday Night Wrestling, which is at New St James's Hall. Literally, it's pulled down now, literally where the um, metro station is now, uh, watch the, the wrestling on the night, then get on the bus back to Ashen, and um, the new sissy knew what time bus they would be getting uh, back, and she'd be waiting at the bus stop in Ashen to take them home. And that was the upbringing. The upbringing was Newcastle United and Uncle Jackie's going all the goals. Is it an Ashton thing? or Because when we spoke to Sir John Hall, he said pretty much the same thing, didn't he? He said, I hopped on a bus, went down to the Haymarket, fish and chips for dinner, to the match, and then back home. Did, did they know Sir John at all? I mean, they grew up both in Ashton? No, or? no, 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 no. Um, no, not really. Um, no, John... 
because John was from family, uh, from Pitstock, and, uh, you know, everybody thinks of him as Sir John Hall in the Metro Centre, and as if some sort of toff that was born with a silver spoon. Oh, no, he wasn't. Uh, he was a self-made man. Uh, but, no, they didn't, and, and I think, John was listening to what the Charlton's had said and thought, I'll have a slice of that. I'll have a slice of that. But it was, it was pretty well like that. Um, I mean, there were tough old times. Remember Jackie Milburn wrote to Newcastle United and asked if he could have a trial at Newcastle, got on the bus down from Ashington to St James's Park, sat on the steps and had a cheese sandwich before he went in for the trial, didn't out in the first half of the trial and was told at half-time, if you want to be invited back, son, you better get your finger out and scored six goals against the first team in the second half and began a career which was legendary in which the Charlton's followed. And a long while later, Jack become a very close friend of mine. I've been very lucky in my life to have some wonderful, wonderful friends in, in football. And Jack become one of them and I said... Um, he was a hero as a kid to me, and then I shared the, the press box with him. And we ghosted three books together, and as a result of one of those books, Jack was approached for This Is Your Life. Um, well, actually, Jack wasn't approached. I was approached. I don't approach the person because it's got to be a surprise. I was approached because I'd done this book to put on This Is Your Life. I, and a long story cut short, it's the first national award I got. We, we did it all day long and he got the biggest surprise of his life. But the two, two of the main guests on that programme, of course, were Bobby and Jack Charlton, who were reminiscing about how great the uncle was. But, um, yeah, uh, wonderful time and Jack, uh, Jack had it harder to make the grade than, than Bobby did because he wasn't as naturally gifted. Now, Jack was interviews... Um earlier this year or at least the interview went out on the Leeds United website and he was asked why didn't you sign for Newcastle was there any interest and on there he said his his mum wouldn't be having it his mum said something about Newcastle would make you sign forms and, and you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to play elsewhere Is I mean was there interest from Newcastle and Jack Charles no, as a youngster? No not really uh, no there wasn't really uh, later in life there was and he eventually ended up managing them of course uh, but no, there wasn't. There was a, a, a passing interest in Bobby John. But I mean, everybody had an interest in Bobby John. But I mean, Sissy always said, I think there was a guy called Ted Hughes who ran Newcastle Ends, which was Newcastle Junior side, who made fleeting contact to say that um, uh, he was interested in Bobby. But it, it never went anywhere. And I think the Charlton's were quite miffed about that um, because they would have liked especially with the Jackie Milburn connection, they would have liked Newcastle to be... Um, and I think Sissy never forgive Newcastle United for that. Jack certainly said, as a kid, if Newcastle had come to his doors, he wouldn't have bothered getting on the bus to go to St James Park. He would have walked all the way down. Um, he didn't think that later on because Leeds become the united love of his life because he spent his whole playing career there. But that was his thoughts. And he never, ever, even when he was playing for Leeds, lost his love of Newcastle United. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about Leeds then. You've, you've mentioned there a bit of a late bloomer, so to speak, mm. with England as well. Uh, but we'll concentrate on Leeds for now. Was it, like you say, he wasn't the best trainer to start with and then Ravi came in and, and gave him maybe a kick up the backside? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he, he had a poor, it was said, 
He had a poor attitude when he was originally down there, his attitude to train. Bless him, he looked scruffy. Uh, he looked knobbly need. Uh, he was opinionated. So there was a lot of things that made you think, oh, he's a rebel or he's not going to make etc., etc. But he, he, at first, he didn't uh, train well, look well. And when Don Revy took over at the club, he, he called him in and said, you'll be on your bike if you don't pull up yeah, yeah, socks because I don't like your attitude, etc., etc. And perhaps that was the shock, the shock that Jack needed, because he buckled down and he become not just a good player, but he was almost like Revy's son. He adored Revy for the end, for the rest of his life, and Don Revy was adored in Leeds, adored by the great Leeds players, Bremner and. Uh, and Clark, all all of the great guys, but wasn't greatly loved elsewhere because of the way he played the game, the the cut angles. They, I'm not saying they, they cheated, but they, they they did everything. They pushed to the boundaries of everything that was possible to push to the boundary of, uh, and of course, then with England, he left under a cloud wherever he had England. So not greatly loved in the way that Shankly was loved and some of the other managers and Busby at Manchester United was loved. Um, but Jack, till the day uh, Revy died and long afterwards to the day Jack himself died, would never hear a bad word said about Don Revy and absolutely adored him for what he made of Jack Johnson personally and of Leeds United as a club. When I was looking at some YouTube interviews over the weekend... One was uh, Brian Clough talking about Jack Charlton. And it must be the only interview, I'm sure some people will correct me if I'm wrong, where I've seen Brian uh, compliment Don Revy. And he said the only person that could have turned Jack Charlton into Jack Charlton that we know was Don Revy. Mm. Which, I mean, we're going to talk later about the whole England and Irish uh, outpouring of grief and connecting that, which is which is amazing in itself. But... Nigel, uh, Brian Clough and uh, Don Revy were quite the uh, the enemies, or, weren't they? Or hated each other. So, uh, so to hear that is amazing. And hated, especially Cluffy, that's how he only lasted 40-odd days at Leeds because he went up and told all the players that the medals had got under Revy that cheated to get them so they could throw them, they could throw them in the ash bin, uh, which got Brian off to a great start. But there was similarities between Brian and uh, Jack as... As um, managers, they were both outspoken, both liked the sound of their own voice, uh, and both clever, clever managers who didn't automatically do it the obvious way. Um, but of course, Brian Clough was a centre forward and um, uh, Jack John was a centre half, so they both knew the worth of each other because of, because of that very reason. But um, yeah. Um, you know, when when you look back on that Leeds side, and he played over 760 games for Leeds in 23 years. I mean, phenomenal. You would never get that sort of loyalty these days because everybody's looking for an angle for a transfer, for signing on fees. The agent agitates because that's how he makes his money. And I mean, in the main, yes, Bobby Charlton played for... Another club, I think he went on to Preston or whatever, at it, it, the death of his career. But both these guys were really one club man, effectively, Bobby was at the height of his career, and played a ginormous number of games for those two clubs. Uh, 
both hugely successful clubs at the same time. Although Bobby wouldn't, uh, Jack wouldn't be uh, adverse to um, clambering all over Bobby when Leeds played Manchester United and leaving a, a few stud marks down more <laughs> kids back. And that didn't seem to be a problem. But yet, the interesting thing was that back in February 1958 was the Munich Air disaster. Uh, and we all know and can remember the stories of that. Even the younger uh, listeners to this will know of the stories. And Bobby was very much part of that Munich Air disaster and thankfully survived it when so many wonderful, wonderful players didn't. Um, but the impact it had on Jack, and I remember Jack telling me quite a few years later, uh, he was with Leeds at the time, and it was before Revy. The manager of Leeds at that time was Rach Carter. And at the end of training, Carter came into the Leeds dressing room where they're getting changed from the training gear into their, their ordinary clothes. And he announced to the full dressing room that the um, Manchester United plane had just crashed in Munich on its way home from a European match. And either didn't realise Jack was in the room or never thought. But the impact on Jack, because Jack's younger brother was in that plane, was absolutely decimating. And all he could do was thinking of getting home to Washington to see Sissy and to find out what the news was and console Sissy. And um, I remember him saying he got the train into the St. James's Park in the Inters, Newcastle, not St. James's Park, obviously, the summer station, and walking out to try to get the bus or a taxi up to Washington and seeing the Chronicle uh, billboards in Munich, that's something like no news on Bobby yet, and being absolutely in tears, went home, saw mum, eventually the two of them went to, to see Bobby and Bobby came home and stayed at home for ages and wouldn't see anybody, wouldn't go anywhere and become even more decimated because his great, great friend was Duncan Edwards, Bobby Charlton's great friend, colossus of a man, a teenager when he was a, a, the greatest player in England virtually and... Um, he survived it along with Matt Busby and they were both touch and go for ages and of course Matt was the mentor and, and Bobby was decimated with these two fighting for their lives and of course Matt made it and, and Duncan didn't and that just about knocked knocked his end in. Um, horrendous, horrendous time. And at that time the brothers were close and sadly... And tragically, um, they didn't remain close for the for the rest of their life. There was a what everybody knows was a and realizes these days was a, a big falling out between the brothers and f over a family matter, um, which is far too harmful to want to regurgitate here when we just merely want to pay tribute to the lovely Jack Charlton. But it was over Jack's mum, sissy. Um, lasted for donkey's years where they didn't speak to each other. And about just over 10 years ago, uh, it got so much better when Jack agreed to make a presentation on television, a national award to Bobby, and just said, War Kid's the greatest player I've ever seen, and he's me brother. And what a touch. 
It's a, it's a wonderful moment. If you haven't seen it, it's doing the rounds on social media. Just, of course it is. Just pop on and, and you'll find it, you know, on Twitter or YouTube. And it is a, it's a wonderful moment because you can see both of them are about to are about to go. And it, I mean, they've, they've got tears in their eyes, and you can hear Jack's voice creaking, and Bobby oh, looks like he's about to cry. It's it's a wonderful yeah. moment, and especially when you put it into context of what you just said. Yeah. Ab- oh, absolutely. You know. And I don't think they ever got back to where they were, but they did get back and and that is wonderful considering what's happened now and um, as I said earlier on Jack was an absolute replica of Sissy and adored Sissy and if he felt anybody didn't quite appreciate Sissy in the way he did he would object violently verbally to that and um, you know, very quietly after the one new World Cup in 1966, very quietly without any fuss, he bought uh, Sissy and Bobby's mum and dad a house in Ashington, bought by Jack just quietly on his own, and he put it. He named the house with a little plaque on it before he moved them in. It was called Jules Remy, which was the name of the World Cup at that time. The, the original World Cup was called the Jules Remy Trophy, but all the press called it the World Cup. Now it's a different trophy anyway to that one, and Jules Remy doesn't... But the house that he bought for Mum, for Sissy, was called Jules Remy. We'll get on to England and the World Cup in, obviously, '66. but just to quickly go through the honours that... He won at Leeds. You've got the, the first division title, second division as well, uh, FA Cup, League Cup, Charity Shield, and two Intercity Fairs Cups, which Newcastle United fans know very well. I mean, that is, it's a, yeah. it's a great, I mean, it was a great side, the, the Don Incre- Revis. Incredible it? record. And, and domestically, outside of what we now call the Champions League, which Bobby did win, which was the European Cup in those days, Leeds won. Virtually everything, uh, with Jack in the side all the way along. And Bobby won exactly the same with Manchester United, topping it off with Bestie by winning the, the European Cup. But um, Jack's career as a player was absolutely phenomenal. And the wonderful thing with the, the World Cup of 66 is that Bobby Charlton was always destined to be the key player in that England side. All whether we won the World Cup or not, the whole build-up and the four-year build-up to it, etc., etc., our link to possible greatness was always Bobby Charlton. Jack Charlton just got in the team very, very late, 28, 29-year-old when he was picked for to get in the side and only won a, a small number of caps over his full England career. Um and wasn't seen as the long-term future of England at that time. So the coming effective, though he had been, at Leeds United. It doesn't always follow that if you're the greatest central defender at one of the greatest clubs in the world, you automatically get an England cap. If I just mention that when Manchester United were winning everything under Ferguson, there was a certain Steve Bruce was centre-half that did that won all the things with him and didn't get one England cap, so he was worse off than Jack. You mentioned it there. His first call-up by Alf Ramsey was on the 10th of April 1965. So given that the World Cup was in the summer, the following summer... 
I mean, that's that's remarkable, oh, isn't it? Uh, as he said, he was in the right place at the right time, but he, he played to put himself in that place with everything that he'd achieved at Leeds. And if you wanted somebody to bowl at the back door, there wasn't anybody better than Jack. If you wanted somebody to play the ball out from the back to cover Jack in case he had a rush of blood, you couldn't get anybody better than Bobby Moore. But if you've got Bobby Moore with all his capabilities, uh, but lack of pace... Uh, and you want somebody to slam the door shut at Bobby Moore's shoulder, then Jack Johnson's the man to do that. And Ramsey was a very clever it not necessarily picking the eleven greatest players available to him, but the players that would gel into the greatest team. A great difference. You might have been able to find a more elegant centre-half than Jack John, but you wouldn't have found a more effective centre-half than Jack John. And there was a story again that Cess told me about those early games, because, of course, Sissy brought up in football, loving football, not just at her two boys, but loving the game, being a Melbourne. And at those early games, when England were playing at the start of the World Cup, England didn't play well. Um, and, you know, they gathered strength and momentum as the tournament went on. But in the early days, the early games, they stuttered somewhat. And, and Sissy was in the stand at Wembley, uh, sitting near the Prime Minister, who at the time was Harold Wilson. And um, England was struggling, but the two Charlton lads, Bobby and Jack, were playing well. Uh, one creative and one locking the back door. And Harold Wilson said, why on earth didn't the Charlons have more bends so that England would have a better team? And Sissy, who overheard him just sitting near him, said, uh, Prime Minister, he said, if you'd, if you'd let us known, we would have had 11 and called them Charlton United, she said. <laughs> she said, because she was a, a cheeky, bubbly lady and uh, was absolutely... Uh, a brilliant, brilliant answer. One of the the shames in some ways is that um, Pat, who, Jack's wife, who in later years has looked after him wonderfully, wonderfully well, um, she wasn't able to be at the World Cup final. All the wives were at the World Cup final, but she was heavily pregnant. And uh, so she was back home and saw games on television, etc., etc. And... Um, Jack had to then celebrate winning the World Cup on the night they won the World Cup on his own and took half a dozen selected friends and out for a meal. And then a few of the lads said, uh, can't afford to come, Jack, you know, a bit skint. And he pulled the wooden notes out the top of his pocket and he said, hey, son, I got these for wearing the boots I wore in the, in the final. He says, we'll spend all this and we'll spend your tenor as well. And he took everybody out uh, to celebrate the World Cup that night. And they went into London and got the odd wave, etc., etc. But can you imagine doing it today with no security? And, no, and to, get, to get out the hotel, uh, Jack told the story, he actually sneaked down behind the Prime Minister's car so that he wasn't spotted by anybody. And, and, and as that slowly went through the crowds, he was ducked down by the side of the door, got out and was away into town to celebrate uh, the greatest win of his lifetime. Although he always said, you know, that it wasn't the greatest win of his lifetime. And when Leeds first won the championship, that was the greatest uh, achievement of his, of his football in a lifetime. Amazing, isn't it? You would think it would be the World Cup, but to him it was Leeds winning the title. Um, 
perhaps because he'd gone from nothing at Leeds to to a championship rather than the World Cup. And um, I know it's been told many times, but I mean, I went up to his house in Stamford to interview him uh, <laughs> long after while he was a manager. And um, it was funny because... Pat had got him to give up fags, you know, she won't mind me telling this story, bless her, because it's it's all in the past now. But he'd given she'd got him to give up fags. He was a big smoker. To give up fags because it was bad for him. It was, was dawning on his soul that it was bad for us. I was smoking at the time and stopped. And every time Pat went out the back or went down to the shops, he'd say, Give her. It's a fag. And I would have a cigarette in my hand because you smoked in the house in everybody's house and in public in those days. And he'd grab the fag out of my hand and smoke the fag as I'm interviewing him. And the minute he heard Pat come back in the house, he stuck it in my in between my fingers, so it was me smoking. All the smell of smoke and everything around was me and Pat if Shadden would be tut tut tutting about me smoking <laughs> in the house, but it was actually Big Jack. And in the coal scuttle by the side of the fire, he kept his medals, including his World Cup medal, was in the coal scuttle by the side of the fire. Because I said, Hey, what's what do you got? What's on the top of there? And it, and it was his medals. He stuck them in there. He said, I'd keep them there in case anybody... He said, you know, I'm not too bothered, but people keep wanting to see them, you know. When they come to see us, you know, they want to go and see me medal. They say, well, you know, I haven't seen a World Cup medal. Can I have a look like? He said, so how? Instead of having the gun upstairs or anything like that, he says, I can just get it out the coal scuttle and say, there it is, like, and, and put it back in. And um, that's what he was like about... He never hung up caps, World Cup winning medal... All the trophies with Leeds, he just had them stuck away in the drawer. And it wasn't because he didn't care about them. He couldn't be more proud, but he didn't need them to remember what a wonderful time he'd had and what he'd achieved. So we've talked about his brilliant playing career. And then he's on to his first managerial job yep. at Middlesbrough. Yep. Had it always been an ambition, do you think, of his to take up a managerial role? I think it was absolutely inevitable that he would do it. Um, as it was inevitable, I think, that great players in the England World Cup winning side, like Bobby Charlton and, and like Bobby Moore, would not make... They both had a double at manager at managerial jobs, but didn't really make it. And you never really thought they would. They weren't cut out for that. Jack always looked as if... He was such a deep thinker about the game. Uh, he was had such a curiosity tactically that you thought he would make a very, very good manager, and so we weren't surprised. I mean, his first managerial job was Middlesbrough, who immediately won the second division championship in 1973-74. And the interesting thing in, is that Jack's great strength, I always found, was tactical rather than necessarily buying the right players, which was Keegan's great strength. Keegan wasn't a tactician, but he could buy well. Uh, Jack's wasn't that he was a particularly great buyer, but tactically he was brilliant. And the side that went up, the Middlesbrough side that went up in 74, which was a great side, Bobby Murdoch, the old Celtic player, Sooness, David Armstrong, John Craggs, Willie Madrin, Jim Platt, Alan Foggin, fabulous side. But there were all Stan Anderson's players, the old Newcastle United and Sunderland skipper who would, uh, who was manager there. He assembled that whole team outside of Bobby Murdoch. Um, but then Jack moved in and he just revolutionised the way that they played. The great strength I felt of Jack as a manager 
was not managing great clubs like, say, Manchester United, the old Leeds, Newcastle United with a huge tradition of playing the right way, or England, or, or Italy. Or if he managed clubs that were against the odds, like Sheffield Wednesday, like Middlesbrough, like the Republic of Ireland, who very much in the international scene were also runs until he took over. He could organise sides like that so brilliantly they would get results they had no right to get. And he did that with Middlesbrough. I mean, Alan Foggin had been a big superstar at Newcastle United when they won the European Fairs Cup in 1969. After that, his career took something of a dip and he went off to Cardiff and whatever and whatever. In the second great coming of Alan Foggin was at Middlesbrough under Jack Jordan, who absolutely adored him. And while to a great extent he was a winger at Newcastle, Jack saw in Foggin his ability to run like the wind. He was very quick, he could run all day. And often against the great sides, Jack would decide to tactically do things different, like when he went to Middlesbrough uh, to Liverpool during the season, Middlesbrough won the title, uh, or in the next season when they were in the first division and did ever so well. He decided that the best way to play against Liverpool was not to play with a centre forward at all, because then big gates and the centre halves wouldn't know to 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 uh, mark. And he played with a false number nine long before it was called a false number nine, which it's called today. People think that these are absolutely new tactics. No, they're not. Jack had forgotten all about them by, by this time. He produced the false number nine, and what he did was had a withdrawn centre uh, forward, which is what Don Revy played way back in the day with Manchester City. It was in Hitchikuti did with the Hungarian side that beat England. He withdrew the centre forward. Then, to beat the system, he got Foggin running from deep in midfield beyond where the centre-forward would be, and he had two passes on both sides of Foggin of the quality of Graham Souness and Bobby Murdoch, who would just play uh, Foggin in. And, uh, I mean, in the promotion season, Foggin scored 19 goals in 41 games up to be top scorer for Middlesbrough. Absolutely phenomenal because he wasn't playing centre-forward. And then the next season, the first division season, 74-75, he scored 16 goals and he wasn't an out-and-out striker. But tactically, uh, Jack played him brilliantly and they, they loved each other. Well, loved I was going to say, other. you met up with Alan... Yeah, this just this weekend gone. Um, we we had a, a get together planned at the house of a, a a big Newcastle United fan who does a lot of business down in Newcastle, and luckily he's got a big enough garden for social distancing. And um, a lot of us got got together, and it was Bob Munker was there, Alan Foggin was there, uh, Keith Dyson was there. Supermac would have been there, but Cowley's wife is isolated to go into hospital for an knee operation, so he wasn't. Um, and as you can imagine, all the talk centred round Jack, because, of course, Bob Monker played against Jack so often, and Foggin was just absolutely decimated by the, the disappearance of um, the great... one of the great football loves of his life. Him and... Uh, Jack Charlton and Joe Harvey were the two managers that meant absolutely everything to Alan. And Alan sees his career having two massive peaks, 
purely because of those those two guys and the tales he had to tell uh, of what what uh, Jack did for him and um, the cleverness of his tactics. Uh, and you've got to bear in mind, this was his first job under, uh, in football at Middlesbrough. They won the second division championship and Jack Charlton was voted manager of the year for 1974. He won manager of the year in the first full season as as a manager. Now, that takes some doing. Was it a gamble, do you think, by Middlesbrough to say, here you go, here's your first job? Um, it's always a gamble. Um, and sometimes it spectacularly works and sometimes it isn't. It was, a, it was a heck of a gamble for Newcastle to give the first managerial job to Kevin Keegan. And what a sensation that was. It was a heck of a gamble for Middlesbrough just this season to give the first managerial job to Jonathan Woodgate. Now, that didn't work out. You don't know. But if you're in football, the one thing you do know about Jack is that he'll be a huge disciplinarian. He was able to be a disciplinarian who was also loved by the players and that was Joe Harvey as well his great strength he was a disciplinarian the players still loved and you knew tactically he was chock full of ideas so it was it wasn't as much a gamble as taking Kevin Keegan out of the sun in in Spain and putting him manager in Newcastle I know that much (laughs) Um, I mean obviously Jack only played under one manager Don Revy was he in his mould, or I mean, Jack's obviously his own character, but could yes. you see bits of Revy's management? You, you, you could, in as much as um, Revy left nothing to chance. Uh, Revy had all the angles covered. Jack had all the angles covered. I don't think Jack was superstitious like Revy. Revy was ultra superstitious, but he introduced dossiers and all this on players. Jack didn't go that far, but tactically, uh, Revy was a very clever man. Jack was a very clever man. Revy wanted his side always to have a cutting edge and aggression about them. And Foley had great players. He had the aggression of Bremner and Giles and Norman Bites Your Legs, Hunter, etc., um, etc. Et and Jack wanted aggression about his sides. He didn't just want fancy dance. Um so, yes, there was a lot of him in that, but he'd also, you know, played under Alf Ramsey, etc. as well, and, and in winning the World Cup, and a lot of that had rubbed off on But Jack was always his own man as well. In all of his life, outside of football as well, Jack was Jack. Obviously, he leaves Middlesbrough. The story of him applying for England and not getting a reply, and then him saying, I'm not going to apply for another job until I'm approached, is that... Is that true? Yeah, yeah, it is true. Um, it is true because he, he felt that it was very... Um, not even to get a reply from somebody that won the World Cup for England, etc., uh, etc. Et I mean, it was more controversial. I mean, they were absolutely scared to death. Uh, Brian Clough didn't get a reply, but they were, they were absolutely scared to death of Brian Clough because he was such an outrageous one-off um, that they, they didn't take the risk, if you like. Um, but I think... Jack Charlton was an exceptional uh, international manager. But I actually think that he was more ready-made for the Republic of Ireland than he would have been for England. Because 
for England, he might have got the reaction he got from some of the Newcastle United fans on the year was here now and say, you're not playing the sort of fancy, wonderful, easy on eye football we like. Whereas with the Republic of Ireland, if you got results and you took the Republic to World Cup finals twice and to European Championship finals, then you could walk on water. And um, his tactics were minimum football, get the ball up as quickly as you could from back to front, play off a big centre forward and try to stick the ball in the net. Were ready made for the Republic. And I th- where he become and will always remain an absolute legend. So I think in lots of ways, although he was hurt by England and you could say it was a miss by England, I think in some ways he got lucky because he was more suited to mm. lifting a country that wasn't a sleeping giant because they weren't a giant, the Republic of Ireland, and make them into giants. And that's what he did. So I think he got the right international team in the end. We'll, we'll get on to the Republic Island in due We've course. Got Newcastle before then. Well, I course. just want to briefly mention Sheffield Wednesday as well because when he got the job at Sheffield Wednesday, they were bottom of the league and he takes them to mid-table safety. I mean, that in itself is... Well, but that's what I was on about, really, Andrew. That's what he was good at, taking middles where they were they were floundering in the second division and making them instant champions, Would... taking Sheffield Wednesday, who were floundering and saving them. But... And taking the Republic of Ireland, who were nowhere, and making them. Whether he would have taken a Manchester United who had to play the sort of football they played and make them anything, or whether he would have suffered the fate he suffered at Newcastle United, was altogether a different matter. He was wonderful at being the fairy godmother, when you could hardly call Jack that, could you? They went into a club, waved the magic wand in a smaller situation and make them great. If he was managing today, would it be unfair to... Sam Aldice has that similar reputation, doesn't he, of going in... To take yes, he has, but, but Jack was better. Yeah. Jack was better than Sam. Yeah. Jack was better um, than So then on to Newcastle then. Yeah, yeah. A job you always wanted? He always wanted to go to Newcastle. Initially as a player, but not once he was a superstar at Leeds because they were winning things and we weren't. But uh, it was always his club, and even when he left Newcastle United after one year, they remained his club. Uh, they'd been his club since War Jackie played there, and he always called them his club. Uh, he took them on at a very difficult time. His one season here was 1984-85. Newcastle had just won promotion up to the old First Division uh, when Kevin Keegan was their skipper. Uh, but in that close season, after uh, promotion was gained, Arthur Cox, the manager, a bit disillusioned that he wasn't going to get the transfer pot he wanted to buy players that summer, left and went to Derby County. Kevin Keegan had already announced in the February that he was going to retire at the end of the season, so he went into retirement and didn't play again. Terry McDermott never kicked another ball for Newcastle after the end of that season. So the whole spine of the club, the manager, the skipper and Terry McDermott who had won European Cups with Liverpool, etc., etc., went. And Jack was catapulted into that because of the War Jackie connection, of course. Um, and the wonderful thing was... He was always a big man. He always did things his own way and he always believed in his own 
ability, believed hugely in his own ability. And he come to work for Newcastle without a contract and told the board that he didn't want a contract. Uh, he said, I don't want a contract. I'll, I'll do the job. And it's Newcastle United. I don't need a contract. I don't want a contract. And never had a contract at Newcastle United. Do you know any manager who wouldn't want to say if you... They want six-year contracts now and eight-year contracts. Now, Mike Ashley, of course, they get them. But <laughs> it, they want that sort of contract. That's so if they, if they do get the push, you've got to pay up five years or something on that contract. He didn't have a contract. I assume that Newcastle approached him and then... Is it yes. Jackie Milburn then said, yeah, take it, persuaded him? Was there, was I there don't a doubt? think he took much persuading. Yeah. He was the go-between to say, you know, come to Newcastle United. And he didn't need much persuading. And he, he made Joe, people forget, he come without a contract and he made, he brought Joe Harvey out the Hancock Museum at the, in the Haymarket, dusted him down and made him his assistant manager at Newcastle United. Morris Setters, who went everywhere with, um, with uh, Jack and went to the Republic of Ireland with Jack as well, uh, was in as chief scout um, at Newcastle. And um, it was difficult because the odds, his first job, first and foremost, was to make certain we didn't go straight back down. How many teams come up and go straight back down? We've just seen it with Norwich City, haven't we? And the great thing was to make certain that didn't happen to Newcastle United. Bearing in mind they'd lost Keegan, they'd lost McDermott. And um, again... He was, I mean, his manner from heaven for the board. He said, I don't want a contract. And then, then said, well, you, you ain't got much money to buy players. But what they didn't say is, and that's why Arthur Cox walked out. And he said, well, I won't buy players. It doesn't matter. Because he thought he had a, a, such a belief in his ability and such a belief in tactically be able to arrange a side so it doesn't get beaten first and foremost as opposed to win, that he said... Don't give us any money in. I'll, I'll do the job. Uh, he got money eventually during the season, but uh, and of course there wasn't pockets of buying then. You could buy any time uh, in a season. Um, but he went out and he had Waddle and Beardsley. In fairness to him, he inherited two players who were just coming to the zenith who were still there. Weren't going to be there Matt, that much longer, but at that stage, when Jack come in, he had Waddle in, in Beardsley. And the amazing thing is, against all the odds, with no contract, with no money to spend the transfer market, he won the first three games in the first division. First time in 34 years, Newcastle had topped the first division. They were top when the table come out after three games and it was going back to September 1950 when Jackie was playing that the last time they were top of the top flight and they won 3-2 with Leicester on the opening day 2-1 home to Sheffield Wednesday 3-0 home to Villa um, and were top of the first division and what happened on the Monday after they won those three games Jack went missing from training and went up to Scotland fishing and went and spent three days and I remember me I <laughs> I carried a, 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 a cartoon in the Chronicle with the manager's, it was the manager's door with Jack John's name on and uh, on it was hung a plaque saying gone fishing on the door of the manager's office and he went up for three, four days to, to Scotland and he seemed amazed when people said, you're top of the league, the season's just started and you've gone fishing, he said. I was always going fishing. It was booked before I got the Newcastle jobs. And he went fishing. 
Do you remember the first moment you heard that he might be getting the job? Did, did he get in touch or did you get in touch with him and try and find out where his head was at before he accepted it? Yeah. Um, yeah, I spoke to him and, uh, and I went up to, to sit in his office and talk to him. And the wonderful thing was he just gave you confidence because he never doubted that he could not be a success. And it, it, it didn't come across as great arrogance. It, it, it came across as great belief. And, and I think that rubbed off on players because of the thought, if, if you're as confident as that, we can't be in the clots. You know, we must be going to be okay. Um, he, he just said, I'll organise them. We'll stay up. I mean, you know, the, the, he was asked to keep them up. He wasn't asked to win the championship. There's a big difference. And he didn't think that he would ever... One of his sides would ever get relegated because he thought he could organise it so they wouldn't get relegated. Uh, and he had great belief in himself and he organised them terrifically. But what he did do, and he mentioned it to me quite early, he looked at the Newcastle side and he knew the history of Newcastle United and the fans, and all the fans loved uh, or, and expected Newcastle to try to pass the ball around and play attractive football. He took one look at his squad and he said to me, Tibbo, we can't play that way. If we, we haven't got the personnel, I can't buy when we haven't got the personnel. If we play that way, we'll be slaughtered. He wouldn't have got knowledge down this season, you know. He would have closed the door and said, to heck with this attacking thing. And he would, But it wouldn't have gone down well. I mean, the knowledge manager has been made into almost a hero for taking them down by the smallest number of points. But because he didn't desert the attacking wall. Jack would have looked at that and said, that's mass stupidity. You make certain you don't go down. That's your first job when you've come up. And and he did that. How did Waddle and Beardsley fit into that side though? Because you, you think about Jack Charlton's sides, and like we say, he's, he's not going to play the fancy stuff because he knows that at that point Newcastle couldn't do it. Yeah. But then you think about Beardsley and Waddle, and instantly yep. it's running at players. It's 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 they're exciting, they're attacking. Was there a bit totally. Of... And by the way, you know when they won three and went top of the league, they, those two were at the height of it. And when the when they beat uh, Villa three 0 to go top. I think Waddle got two and made the other one. I mean, uh, and then later in the same season, we, we drew 5-5 at QPR. We're 4-0 up at half-time and drew 5-5 at QPR and, and Waddle scored three and made the other two in front of Bobby Robson, and, who was then England manager, and that started Waddle's England career off as, as a superstar. Um, but he... The difficulty was always going to be that he was And by the way, the, the, the same difficulty happened when he went to the Republic of Ireland. Their big superstar was Liam Brady, who was the midfield creator at Arsenal. Um, and he had Waddle and Beardsley here. But he sometimes sacrificed your great player <coughs> for the sake of the team. He would want the team to be have a firm base and not lose. The Alf uh, Ramsey kind of... Yeah, and if that meant that, you know, your fancy dance, if that's what you call them, had to suffer, then they had to suffer. And, um, I mean, I've got to admit, uh, you know, it tested me as a friend of Jack because I, I loved Waddle and Beardsley. And they ended up playing outside right and outside left as that season went on in, in Jack's team. Um, and he, he, he bought two hammer throwers to play centre-forward one of if they 
well, they both become quite good friends, but they couldn't play. Uh, they were just hammer throws, and it, it was uh, Tony Cunningham and uh, George Riley. Uh, uh, but the idea was you got the ball at the back, you played it up, long ball straight up to your centre forward, he nodded it down and you played off him to try to finish. So, uh, Graham Taylor did the same thing with Watford and took them all away. So it was, um, it was percentage football and no fancy dance. Um, and uh, Waddle accepted it, quickly left mine, quickly left by the end of that season. Um, it was very difficult for Beardsley. Peter could never come together with it and could never, therefore, come together with Jack. Uh, and and they they were a million miles apart from each other as a consequence of that, um, because it was the way we played. Uh, I always remember one game, yeah, the Drew and Jack, and it, it, Newcastle got the ball. They were one nil up. They were leading by a goal, one goal, and we went on the attack. Beardsley got the ball, and there was a minute to go, and he decided to do what only Beardsley could do which is uh, slalom his way through the defence and stick it in the bottom corner, which he did. Turned away, 2-0. Wonderful job done. Final whistle goes straight away. Jack comes on the pitch. On the pitch, on the final whistle, didn't wait for the dressing room, straight over to Beardsley and gave Beardsley the biggest rollicking of his life. And you could see he was getting it, but you, did, you couldn't hear what was said. For not taking the ball into the corner and playing around with it in the corner till the whistle went, he said, because... And, and Beardsley looks at him and said, Hey, boss, I stuck it in the net. We've won 2-0. He said, Aye, but what if you had lost it and they'd gone down the other side? It would have been 1-1. And it was the different approach. They, they, it was the Bobby Charlton approach was Beardsley, the, the, the Cavalier. Uh, and and Jack John was the roundhead, the, the the you know the roundheads and the cavaliers. You don't you, you guard what you've got, and to to Peter the way to do it is to turn one nil into two nil, and and they found it very very difficult. But in Jack's defence, it has got to be said that he kept Newcastle up comfortably, um, and if results are paramount in football. He got the results, but in getting them, um, he, he alienated some fans. I mean, you can imagine the 5-5 five, five down at QPR after leading 4-0. And he used to be a centre-half with with England, and he sees the defence squander a 4-0 half-time lead. Well, there is the story, isn't it, that he ran onto the onto the pitch during training at one stage and, and, and taught them how to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was there with him. It was with me. Uh, sure, he's... <laughs> We, what he'd done, he decided, he loved his lunches, the Jack. He loved lunch to reminisce over football. So uh, he loved lunch, especially if I was buying it. And, and so I said, yeah, yeah, let's go. We went into town and um, we had a bottle of vino, a lovely meal, and it ended up with coffee and cigars. In those days, you could smoke cigars in a restaurant. Um, lovely meal. At that time, we trained at Benwell. And he said, 
Hey, he said, there's an afternoon session on, because he wasn't always at the train. That's like when he went uh, angling up in Scotland after, with us, top of the league. So he said, hey, well, Gibbo, we'll go back up the Benwell. you got time. And he, has, he said, drive us up the Benwell. We'll go up the Benwell and have a look at the train. Like, so I said, hey, that's great. So we went up the Benwell, parked the car, and the lad's already out on the training pitch with, with the, the coach there. So we wander across, he's got his flat cap on, and, 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 and we wander across and stand on the touchline watching it. And the drill they were doing was to was for the centre-halves. And they were getting a winger to drill the ball into the penalty area where there was attackers and defenders. The two centre-halves had to go up above the attackers, head the ball as far away as they could. They kept getting weak headers in that were only dropping to the edge of the penalty area a midfielder was coming on to it and having a, a pop at goal. And this happened three or four times and Jack's getting more exasperated and more exasperated at these two centre-halves. Bear in mind, this fellow had won the World Cup as a centre-half. So eventually, after another weekender comes out, he, th- he takes his cap off, throws it on the ground, he's shouting, no, 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 and he strides on the pitch, which is as muddy as heck, and he's got brogues on, and he's still got the cigar clenched between his teeth and his mouth from our lunch, and he goes in the middle, he stands in the crowd of penalty area, and he says, right, this is how he's He said, right, send the ball over. So the sent the fella sent us the ball, Jack, in his brogues, with the cigar in the mouth, without it ever falling out the mouth, rose above the two centre-forwards who were playing in there, with his elbows out as he, as he did at Leeds, which scattered the opposition round, thumped the ball with his head, went straight up to the halfway line, turned round on his heel and said, that's the way you bloody defend him comes out Gibbo away let's off and, and and that was him and that was Jack's way of doing it and Jack could defend well smoking a cigar with brogues on albeit he got rid of his cap and the Newcastle two centre-halves couldn't and and that was typical of Jack uh, both in his briskness and um, he just wanted to join in he was always a player in training if if he was there, he played. But one thing that Jack certainly had was goals in his game. I mean, Jack scored 80-odd goals yeah. for Leeds as a centre-back. Absolutely. I mean, there was two main reasons for that. One was because he was eight foot six and he dwarfed Gray's Monument in the centre of Newcastle, which was obviously a help. And two, because even as a player, he was a thinker. And tactically, he went and saw Don Revy and said, look, what we've and, and Don loved, as I say, pushing right to the end of the traces, anything he could do to get an advantage, he loved it. And Jack said, Look, what should happen is that on corners, and plenty have done it since, but on corners, I will stand on the goalkeeper. I'll stand in front of the keeper when the corner's coming in. So the least I'm doing is blocking the keeper that gives every one of our attackers a chance because I'll block him. Or will perfect through training an in-swinger that actually comes in, I'm blocking the keeper, it hits me on there, I just turn it and boom, it's in the net. And he scored from about six inches, as often as not. And he used to say, he used to love reminiscing to me about, you know what I did there, Gibbo? Have a look. I was standing on his toes. I was standing, because he backed into the keeper and he said he stood on the keeper's toes. So the keeper just flapped and he got a boom and went boom, just turned it into the net. And that was a tactic that, and Revy said, brilliant, 
I love that idea, let's do that. And of course, they had people that could deliver, whether it was Loma or the Grey or they put the ball on a sixpence. And um, that's how he scored all his goals. And he was eight foot six, of course. So, they, you know, even the keeper jumping was only the same height as him. And so he did score an awful lot of goals. And he, that was an early sign of the tactics, which is what he was good at. But you know, another thing during that season with Newcastle United, when I say what, what he did do was was keep us up quite easily, was that that was the year, that season was the, the season of the miners' strike up here in the northeast, particularly poignant, as, as you would know from the history books, if not any other way. And um, Jack, of course, was very much mining stock in Ashington. His dad had been down the pit, well, Jackie had been down the pit. He was going to go down the pit, but for his footballing ability. And he, he became a very, very close friend of Arthur Scargill, who was the miners' leader, when he was playing at Leeds. And Scargill lived nearby and used to go to Scargill's house um, for dinner. Etc. Etc. And quietly during that season, he was manager of Newcastle United, and the miners were on strike and were poverty stricken. And he knew so many of them were Newcastle United fans. He went quietly and gave a lot of miners free tickets to go to Newcastle United and watch the games, um, because he knew of their love. And that was exactly the stock he was a miner's son from Washington that adored Newcastle United. So he recognised that in the miners during the strike, big supporter of Scargill, never made a fuss of it, never come out um, as a big story in wonderful me helping the miners. It's just something he did, which was, which was absolutely terrific. The one, the one thing as well, you might remember during that season, we, we talked about Waddle and Beardsley and his handling of Waddle and Beardsley uh, in his team. Uh, Jack was very much like Bobby John, could never remember anybody's name. Uh, and that, again, wasn't Alzheimer's or dementia or late at night. People presumed that with both of them, it was a thing that developed. No, it wasn't. When they were both players, Bobby John, uh, uh, sorry, Bobby Robson and Jack John were exactly the same, couldn't remember people's names. Um, and as far as Waddle and Beasley was concerned, he called them Big Lad and Little Lad with his Northumbrian accent because of the size. Waddle, I didn't mind that at all. Um, Peter wasn't so chuffed about being called <laughs> Little Lad, but he was. Uh, and I mean, it was always like this. When he, when he went on and managed the Republic of Ireland, he inherited Liam Brady, who I mentioned before, who basically sacrificed in the Ireland team in the way that he perhaps sacrificed Waddle and Beardsley in the Newcastle team because he needed a solider team. And Liam Brady was wonderful on the ball, but he wasn't so wonderful when he didn't have the ball, i.e. he wasn't a tracker or anything of that nature. And so in team meetings, he would be describing to Liam Brady what he wanted him to do. No, you've got to, you've got to track the man that's got the ball, etc., etc. And he, used to, he said to him, he said, hey, listen, you... Ian Brady, he said, I want you to do this. And Liam looked up and said, no, Gaffer, I'm, I'm Liam Brady. Ian Brady is the Moors murderer. 
And of course, you can imagine the whole of the dressing room disintegrating into hysterical laughter. But uh, and of course, it didn't take Jack out. He stride for one flipping moment. He said, "Just say, well, anyway, ye, you better track whack when when, when they've got the ball." <laughs> Before we talk about him leaving Newcastle, um, I think everyone knows the story. Yeah, and literally walking in the dressing room and saying, "I've had enough." But Let's mention Paul Gascoigne because, you know, Gaza was coming through the ranks at that time. Yes, he was. And and, in lots of ways, Gaza says that um, his career only blossomed because it was rescued by Big Jack in that one season. Because the one season Jack was boss, Gaza had all the talent in the world. Newcastle won the FA Youth Cup that season that, that Jack was there. Gaza was the top dog in that side and in the final against Watford scored the two goals at Watford when we won went in the dressing room afterwards uh, evidently in the Watford chairman come in to congratulate the young Newcastle team on winning the trophy and Gaza looked up and said hey Elt gives a song it was Elton John, of course. And you know, this little chirpy, chubby, round-faced Geordie shouting in, instead of being... Everybody else was goggle-eyed and over, you know, overawed by this wild extrovert guy who was a world global superstar coming in saying, well done. And this voice jumped up from the back. It was Gaza shouting, hey, Elt, give a song, lad. Um, but they won the trophy. And during that time, despite the talent that... that Gaza had, or possibly because of it, he knew he could just play regardless. He was getting really chubby, and and he admitted that he was eating a lot, a lot of junk food. He had the Mars bars and the mince pies, and he was becoming a porky pie himself. And he said, Jack got him into the office one day and said, I'm going to tell you something, you might be able to play, but you're too fat. He said, you're like a roundabout in the town. You're like a roundabout. He said, if you don't get... Two stone off, and he didn't mean literally as much as that. In a fortnight, you'll be out on the air. And he always says, Gaza, that I was so terrified at Jack in the thing going in the fortnight's time and him slaughtering me and possibly chinning me because I hadn't lost the weight. He said that I lost the weight. I almost sewed me lips up so I couldn't eat. And he lost the weight and... Although it was Willie McFall that followed that gave him his full debut, he went on as sub in the first team two or three times under Jack, who therefore gave him his first taste of football. And as you're saying, we don't need to go into it now because we know the story about how he, he walked out against Sheffield United in a pre-season friendly because Newcastle got booed and there was only about 5,000 fans there anyway and he said if they don't want me I'm not staying I'm gone that's the test of his character and that shows the kind of man he was and and he just went in and told the board that and left and bear in mind what I said the start of the Newcastle bit which was he hadn't a contract there was no money come to him he was just off and took it and Willie McFall phoned me on the day it was announced that Jack had sadly passed away I got a phone call from Willie McFall in Northern Ireland to say Gibbo I'm decimated about Jack and to pay his tribute to me and just to reminisce about Jack because at that time he was Jack's co- he was on the Jack's coaching staff um, and when he walked out which was literally pre-season there wasn't time for Newcastle to look round they gave the job as caretaker to Willie 
who then got it full time and that that's when we got the start of Willie and he just felt that he and, and Willie and his wife become friends of Jack and Pat's very closely and um you know, he thought the world of him, but everybody that was around him did. And of course, maybe it was a low part of his career that for Jack, because it was his club that it, their fans had turned their back on him. But his greatest achievement as a manager was still to come when he took over the Republic of Ireland, of course. Most certainly. And we saw over the weekend the tributes, you know, that came across social media and you know, Football Focus brought up the screen and it was one tweet from, you know, the England FA and the one tweet from the Republic of Ireland, which speaks volumes because there's always been that feisty relationship between the two oh, countries uh, when it comes to football politics. I mean, it, it, it was, it's been incredible, really, Andrew, when you look back and you realise without going into the politics, the, the difference there is between... England and Ireland, regarding the troubles and everything that's happened in Ireland. And, um, you know, you've got an England Protestant that won the World Cup for England going and managing the Republic of Ireland in Dublin where he could have been absolutely hated because of his background. I mean, the appointment could have been one of the most controversial possible to make. And yet... If it was at all possible, he become more loved in the Republic for what he did for them than he did by England fans for winning the World Cup. It was and for somebody to achieve both those things with countries so diverse and with a history of conflict between them, absolutely staggering. It shows the power of football, I guess, as well that you know he managed to do that. It does, and it shows the courage and the self-belief of Jack Charlton that he would take the job. and ne- he, he, It would never dawn on Jack, you know, to think about the political side of it when he took the Republic. Did he, did he speak to you before the yeah, I, I, I spoke to him about I said, uh, you know, I said, I said, well, I said, I said, well done. I think this job's made for you because tactically you will turn this. He says, I give away. He said, I, it's crossed my mind. That's why I've taken it, you know. And I said, there is, it's Irish. He said, ah. That's got now to do with it. He says, football's the language we speak. If the football goes right, everybody loves you. If the football goes wrong, even your own country does. I mean, he's a fan of Newcastle United and the, fa- and the fans didn't take to him because of the football he played. And he was an Englishman going to Ireland and the fans loved him because of what he achieved over there. And he always had a wonderful belief in his own ability. And, you know, without... Listing everything he'd done, he, I mean, 1990, he took the Republic to the first ever World Cup finals, the first ever, and the, they were in England's group and played Bobby Robson. Can you imagine that? Bobby Robson v Jack Charlton in the World Cup, um, 1-1, and he got all the way through to the quarterfinals when he lost to the host, Italy, 1-0, and, um, you know, to take them over there and they... they, they the Green White Army that was over there, and he he went and Pope John Paul II at the Vatican, and there he is with all the, the Irish guys in the back. This big tall Geordie uh, adored, and four years later, lo and behold, he repeats the feat again, and and Republic are in the World Cup finals again. And if we remember, in in 1994, England failed to qualify. For the World Cup finals, uh, much 
to my dismay, because not only being an Englishman, but because at, those, at that stage I was covering all the World Cup finals and all the Olympic Games for the Chronicle. And the minute England didn't qualify, I just presumed, well, that's the end of that. The Chronicle wouldn't send me when England on there. And in particular, it was a trip you wanted because it was America with all that new meant. And unlike when I was over there for the Olympics and you're in one city all the time, Atlanta, you would go all over the country for the, for the World Cup. And lo and behold, they sent me because they said, well, Jack Johns here with the Republic. Jack Johns a Geordie go with the Republic of Ireland squad. And I went with the, the squad and stayed with them till they were knocked out and then continued right away to the final, which was in uh, in LA. And I always remember everybody, all it seems that all of America has got Irish blood in them because every American has got a great-grandmother or a great-grandfather that came from the Emerald Island. They all came to the hotel to see the Irish team. They all wanted to see Big Jack. We played the first game of the whole tournament out there at the Giant Stadium in New York. And honestly, it was just full of Irishmen. Three quarters of the ground were full of Irishmen and a quarter of the ground were full of Italian waiters from New York who were supporting Italy. And lo and behold, the Republic beat Italy, the aristocrats of, of world football, 1-0 with a Ray Houghton goal. And... You know, his legend, if it had not been already established in Ireland through 1990, was just compounded with that, with beating Italy in that. And um, the whole trip was just absolutely terrific. I mean, I stayed with the team all the way and I always went in for beer in the bar uh, at the night time before I went in for my meal, dinner. And I'd be up at the bar having a, a, a little snifter, a little wine, and I would hear these footsteps behind us. And then this Northumbrian, unmistakable Northumbrian brogue saying, There's a fag, Debo, mine's a Guinness. And, uh, and that was Jack coming up. And he would say that every night. And I remember saying to Jack, uh, after about a week, I was saying, Jack, I, I just want to run this past you and see what you think. You're an international World Cup manager that won the World Cup with England and is on a fortune. I'm the little kid from the Chronicle that's on two and tuppence expenses. How come I'm buying all your fags and all your Guinness? Is it not your turn? And he said, Gibber, didn't worry about it. He says, you'll get the stories. And I got some stories that the, the Irish press didn't get because he was looking after the Geordie. And whenever... <laughs> whenever Whenever I interviewed him afterwards, when he, after that trip and everything, and I would phone him up and say, hey, Jack, fancy a bite to eat? And we'll do a story, you know, face-to-face -face or whatever. I'd say, aye, that's all right. We'd all say to him, is the Chronicle going to pay for the story? I said, no, no, they didn't. You know that, Jack. He said, aye, I don't know that. He said, are they going to pay for the meal? I said, oh, I doubt it. They might pay for your bit of the meal, but they won't pay for my bit of the meal. You know, I'm, he said, tell you what, We'll meet at Harry Ramsden's in the Metro Centre. I said, right. Went there, got a fishing ship that, that fish just hung off the side of the plate. And I said, what we're doing down here? Well, he did the adverts for Harry Ramsden's, so he got the two meals for now if you ate in Harry Ramsden's. So we always did the Chronicle interviews in, high, in Harry Ramsden's, uh, and there was Jack. Never took his cloth cap off, by the way, when he was having his fish and chips. Um, 
But, uh, in, you know, everybody kids about him financially, but he was never, you know, around when the great money was there. I mean, he won mm. the World Cup, but there wasn't the money that that Joe Linton would be getting today at Newcastle United and not or any other Newcastle player. There wasn't that money around at those times, and so they were just ordinary mm. folk, slightly better off than me, but not hugely better off. I mean, few people united, you know, them two countries in such a way... After he retired, he tried his hand at punditry and then just kind of slipped off into retirement and it was love for fishing. and that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was... A, I got to know him ever so well in retirement as well. Got to know him even more. Um, he was a wonderful after-dinner speaker. Very, very warm, often off the cuff. Very frank, which uh, was like Brian Clough. I mean, if he asked an opinion, he wouldn't give the politically correct answer. He would give <laughs> his opinion, which is what he was asked for. Had a million tales to tell. Um, and we'd become very close. And at that time, one of my mates, who is still my mate today, is Glenn McCrory, the world champion boxer. Uh, and we used to put on just because we're two daft kids. We used to put on what we called the Ten Club, which once a month would meet, sometimes in Glenn's house, sometimes in a restaurant. And it was selected guests only, only ten people, including Glenn and I, so eight guests. And we put Dickie Bowes on, and we got, even in Glenn's house, we got dressed up in the full Dickie Bow tie, etc., etc. And we, Glenn got somebody in to actually serve the meal was sitting at the table and we invited the eight guests and they often were half were business people four and four were sports people and um, Jack Charlton was a regular one, uh, member of that along with Super Mac and Mike McLeod Mick Martin Johnny Nelson the boxer uh, Frank Maloney who was the manager of Lennox Lewis etc etc and Jack was so funny at these days and he'd become very close to both me and to Glenn and Jack had been made Deputy Lieutenant of Northumberland in 1997 by the Duchess of Northumberland. Uh, she has had a post since. And he did that job, loved it. He was great for the job. World Cup winner, uh, Northumbrian, still had the accent, etc., etc. When he retired from that because of age and because of ill health, he recommended Glenn McCroy to get the job. Glenn got it and is still one of the deputy lieutenants now. But because of the closeness that the three were got, I remember at one stage, because his great love was Jack was fishing, um, loved all country pursuits and fishing in particular, river fishing, not sea fishing. And at the time, Glenn and I were doing several videos. We did one on Huey Gallagher. Uh, in which we had Arnold Shearer on it. We went over to Las Vegas and did The Meanest Man on the Planet. Was it Sonny Liston or was it Mike Tyson? I'd met Sonny Liston, he'd met Mike Tyson, Glenn. We did that over there. We did. We brought Jerry Lee Lewis to the City Hall in Newcastle for a rock and roll concert. And we did a Jack fishing video that actually never got uh, out on telly, although I've got a copy of it at all. And we did it in the river, and I did the interviews, but I wasn't daft enough to go in the river because Gibbo's got a little bit up between his ears, and Glenn's a boxer. Uh, so Glenn goes in the river with Jack, and Jack's in the, in the river with a gear on, and the expert fisher. 
and suddenly you will hear this enormous bloody splash and look round and Glenn's disappeared. Somebody, where's he gone? He'd, he'd taken one step over a rock, slipped, and he'd gone underneath it, and he resurfaced quickly. And at this stage, Jack's rolling around laughing, can't do anything for laughing, doesn't go to try to help uh, the big man. I sort of staggered to the end and let him get a hold of my arm, would drag him out, and he was absolutely bedraggled, having been under the water. And we had to march him into, I think it was Rothbury, was the nearest little village, and buy him a whole lot of gear to be able to wear, because that night we were actually going down to a hotel on the Keyside in Newcastle, where we were taking the fish that had been caught that day and, and having them done by the chef down there and then presented to us to eat at the meal, and that was the final part of the video. Oh, Steve Black was there as well, the old um, coach of Newcastle Falcons. And uh, we weren't going home, etc. so... Um, McCraw, he hadn't any gear. So he did appear on this video, probably why it never got published. I think he might have sabotaged it because he was wearing all this weird gear that didn't fit. <laughs> but that's the way it was with um, with Jack. Uh, if he'd become your friend, you had a friend for life. And he, he was everybody's friend. Didn't suffer fools gladly, but a warm man beneath the bluster, as warm a man as you could wish to meet. He was very witty, wasn't he? You know, yeah. it was said that he was a talk show's host, uh, oh, Dream. He was on oh. Parkinson, and there's a there's a really good clip of uh, where Michael Parkinson says, "Oh, you're the same age as me." And he goes, "No, no, no. I remember playing uh, cricket at 15, and you were there busy reporting." And it's just that kind of that sharp way. Oh, that, that that never went away. Even in, in his towards the end of his life, he was still sharp. <laughs> into the last three or four yeah. years, uh, but, he, but he, well into retirement, he was still uh, much sought after on after dinner speaking. And I first noticed that perhaps, uh, you know, perhaps Jack was slowing down a little bit uh, when we did him an after dinner together. I was the compare and Jack was the star turn that was making the speech. And I was sitting next to Jack and, he, and, and all he had was a piece of paper because he did everything off the top of his head, but he had prompters down. Just in case he dried up, you look at the prompter and then off he went again. <clears throat> and he, he, he said to me, Gibber, he said, if I suddenly dry up, you look down on the sheet and just say, Alf Ramsey, Republic of Ireland to trigger me yeah. and set me off again. And I just thought, hey, we all get forgetful as we get a little bit older. It's no more than that. And, it, and at that stage it wasn't, but slowly it did become much more than that, uh, which is always awful to see because especially with such a giant of a man, physically and mentally and in every way possible, a witty man, a clever man, a man that had an answer for absolutely everything and an instant answer, but was getting to the stage. And I always remember I was privileged to the Variety Club did it do for me um, to mark 50 unbroken years reporting on the Newcastle United for the Chronicle. And a lot of celebs were kind enough to take up their time and their money and go there and pay tribute to me. There was John Hall and Peter Beardsley and Glenn McCrory and uh, Steve Harper and Sheeran Keegan sent videos in, etc., etc. And Jack was there with Pat. And um, 
the one thing Pat said to me is, um, Jack will get up and take a round of applause because people were getting up and talking about their rem- reminiscing about me. They said, but do Jack a favour, don't ask him any questions. I wasn't doing the interview and somebody else was. And we didn't. And that was just the start of Jack. Um, the troubles have come to to all of us. But um, I'd known him since... I'd known Sissy for donkey's years. I knew him since he went to Leeds and used to come up here. I used to do talkings with both him and Bobby. Um, funny enough, never together. <laughs> I have said never together separately, but in a lot more with Jack than with Bobby. And Jack was a much better talker on stage than Bobby was. Bobby talked with his feet. Jack could talk as well as play. Um, so I knew him from there all the way through his, his managerial career, He's after dinner speaking, doing the videos, right away through to the start of, of, of him not quite being as sharp as he used to be with the Variety Club. And I last saw him, I think, in Tesco's in Kingston Park, which is where where I lived for a while and where he used to come down shopping with Pat. And um, it, it, it was lovely to see him, but um, I like remembering the man I remember giant who stood six foot six and possibly stood eight foot six and was a giant in every way and always carried the jolly flag. Uh, that's the man I want to remember because he's the, the man that served the Milburn clan well, the area well, and every single Geordie possible in this world should remember Jack Johnton with great, great affection um, and be so privileged to think we had the whole Melbourne clan and then two brothers who played in the successful World Cup final uh, our privilege in lo and behold he was one of us the Irish love him as if he was their son but he isn't their son he's our son